Welcome to the How We Create podcast. I'm your host, Carissa Moreno. I've realized that growing up in an artistic family gave me a support system and encouragement to approach challenges in life without overthinking and without worrying about the outcomes. I want to create a community with you to validate your artistic process, to let you know that you are not alone, and to inspire you to create something today. I will be here weekly, telling you about my experiences as a creative and also having conversations with fine artists, musicians, performers, dancers, and you will learn how they create, how they experiment, and how they turn failures into opportunities for growth. I know that you are going to enjoy getting a peek inside their minds and creative lives. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. It really helps. Today's guest is Liam Ellerby, the founder of The Curious Forge, an art center and makerspace in Nevada City, California. Liam is also a self-proclaimed metal maniac. I took my first welding lesson with Liam, so I would also call him a very patient teacher. And I'll have you know that I made a pretty good welding bead on my first attempt. Liam has some good advice for sparking your curiosity. I hope you enjoy. Liam, welcome to How We Create. It's an honor to have you thanks. here. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Appreciate what you're doing. You are someone that I know as a maker and a creator and someone who takes risks in their art. How did it all begin? What was your first memory of making something, of being creative? And it doesn't necessarily have to be art, but just that first memory and what that sparked in you. I appreciate that question. And I just got a chance to cast back. And really, my first memory was uh, my best friend's father owned a bar. And so we could go in there in time in that era surreptitiously but in full view and they'd always have these bar tricks transferring an olive from one place to another a lot of toothpick tricks all of those were redirections or reinterpretations and I think solving those as a kid and getting that praise from the bar flies that were always there launched me in that oh that's a special gift I have it seemed like being able to solve those bar trivial uh, problems really got me launched on that that's fascinating. So did you solve them yourself or did you get hints or did they help you out at all? Or you just that you watched and you figured yeah, it out? Yeah. A lot of uh, the breakthroughs I felt like sprung from different things I would do just out of curiosity. Curiosity has always driven me. Like the olive thing was knowing that I could swing a bucket full of water and not spill any by that centrifugal force. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And so the olive trick was you put a, a cup over the olive and start swimming swirling it in the centrifugal force kept it in the glass. So problem solving like that. Some of it was learning from not being able to solve it. And, and others was taking the natural curiosity paths that I went on into the problem solving. Can you tell us how you took that problem solving into making and into creating? I think uh, a big thing where I lived was tree forts. And we were trying to outdo each other in defensiveness, in comfort, in and uh, some aesthetics as well. The aesthetics was just budding back then. But so a lot of things ended up like, I don't know if you the Belgium waffle at Burning Man. Uh, yeah. It was an amazing four story, just stick up these 10 foot studs. And it was very organic, really shocking. I remember bringing my friends who were cabinet makers. Everything's precise. Every stick of wood is in this place precisely. And then watching their face just 
like, oh my God, here's a, a four-story organic creature that just emerged out of desert. So a lot of my stuff looked like that because it's always been an organic process for me and my relationship and dance with what I could do and what the material could do and what my imagination. It's a really interesting place to meet yourself. So building forts encompasses a lot of that. You know, you learn about tying knots, doing pulleys, and the effect of gravity when you're falling out of a tree. While I was young enough and I guess soft enough bones that it wasn't that much of a problem, as much as it is now, definitely don't bounce as high these days. But I think probably the biggest thing, most impactful thing for me doing that was taking raw materials and creating some of my, with my hands and my imagination. That's something at the art center that I, I run that I love experiencing with kids and adults as well, that you take an eight foot long one by eight and turn it into a toolbox is one of the projects they do. And so a lot of kids, that's a, a really unique, new, magical experience. Uh, we just last week did a skateboarding class for, for teenagers. And that a lot of times is their first experience with any of that tools and materials. And they got a chance to do a laser cutter. They gave me the design. I turned it into a vector file and they put their own thumbprint on their skateboard. Really powerful. You and I were actually having a conversation before this about having home ec and, and wood making in school. And I remember in the wood making class, we made a stool. It was that magic of transformation of turning something that is flat and a raw piece of material into something useful. Yeah, and every material has its own characteristics. And so you're dancing with that. I actually got into metal, my main material now, through ceramics and pottery and that. It's easy to get form, but hard to get volume. And metal was just the opposite. Very easy to get volume and hard to get form. Playing with that, using one to inform the other. In fact, we have a two by four challenge right now. What can you do with a two by four? And so people are making, like you said, turning into little tables and that I took sawdust full of, of a two by four and sculpted it into a termite <laughs> and using a, a resin with the sawdust from a two by four. Oh, yeah, materials always, I feel, if you ever seen the model of a humunculus, it's in the British Natural History Museum, but it does a representation of how much of our brains are we used in sensory and motor in our body. So, of course, our mouth is really big because tasting, talking, all that, but our hands are huge. We are creators and makers and all of that. And being a programmer and IT person for decades, I really needed it to nourish myself as a kind of a whole human being is creating, grabbing things with my hands and fashioning them into things that matter to me. Having that balance was really important as I went through adulthood. When did you first start making creative things? Obviously, the tree houses were creative. You were building yeah. and designing. But was there a point when you decided that you were a maker? Or was that just something that was naturally in you? It was just something you always did? I think being curious and enjoying learning and what I call movement was really important in that, like figuring things out. I love when something gave me this whimsical laugh because of the juxtaposition of like a Dean Kuntz, where he has these inflatable things made out of half inch plate steel, things like that. It's always been there. And it's really about curiosity and wanting to 
explore my curiosity and what that will lead you to. It's been there the whole time, even in computers doing interfaces, which is the closest you can get to making something, mm -hmm. is creating an interface that is intuitive, exposes, it changes data into knowledge, that type of thing. Yeah, but needing, I, I think, being in computers uh, pushed me into more tactile things. That's why I picked up pottery. You left there with grit in your teeth, mud on your shoes and, and clothes. And yeah, and something to put in the back of your closet. What? I was just going to ask you what kinds of things you were making in pottery, but now I think I know. <laughs> Lopsided bowls. and right. I've always been a jack of all trades, master of none. And so I got fairly good at pottery by just needing that outlet. And when you master it, it's really a beautiful thing you can do with this material that you get to know so intimately and especially with clay it's dug out of a bank and then it can end up on a, a pedestal worth thousands of dollars or in the back of your closet or drinking from it so my personal aesthetic is really about utility and aesthetics and where they meet i just really love that and we're right now we're doing a smart art series where we're using technology with art and so it's not about making it logical or efficient or blinky lights. It's as uh, somebody I, I had read and said was to make it more poetic and profane using that technology. And really technology is changing so much at the Curious Forge. We really try and keep the artists from going to the left side of the brain. So we have 3D scanners and various technologies where you can take a picture and make a depth map out of it instead of having to learn a CAD program to do that. Having those tools to keep you in that flow, in that creative flow, and that is super important. We're really sensitive to it. I do want to talk to you about the Curious Forge and the work that you do there. But before we go there, can you tell me a little bit about what you consider to be creative risks and what creative risks you've taken in the things that you make and how that's helped you grow as an artist? Yeah, I think starting with just the words we use and the semantics behind it, it's been an ongoing thing of trying to create a new relationship with failure and mistakes and risks. I, I'm sure you probably remember doodling, you take a coffee cup stain, you know, mm -hmm. stain left by a coffee cup, and you start creating out of that. So that was a mistake that can oftentimes lead to really creative thing. Having that new relationship with the word mistake and failure. You know, with failure, you're meeting up an edge, your edge of uh, your imagination, meeting the real world and your skills and the material. If we at the Forge, I really encourage people to use the word exploration because then it frees you a little bit. I took a, a process painting a workshop one time from a friend and the quote painters in that course where there was paper put up on the walls everyone could see everyone you went to the middle and you got a color and you came over and met your painting over and over and all this critique could come up but the painters had a really serious time with that one of them just started crying because she didn't like what was coming out of this improv painting thing so I feel really grateful that I happened to stumble upon this thing of exploration and play. I just heard on NPR a study they did by changing words for math tests and chemistry tests and physical tests. When they changed the wording, the people, the subgroups that 
typically didn't do as good, like women with math, actually then did the exact same performance. So underneath that subconsciously, part of their brain was being occupied by this fear. And it goes along with this idea of play, whimsy, and that bumper sticker, life's too important to take seriously, which I uh, always appreciate. I think about this word mistake a lot in art and even in life. And I, I wish we had a different word for it. And I've been trying to think of what that could be. I was thinking experimentation, but when you're in the process of it and you get a result, what's the word for that? When you get a result that you don't like and yeah, how do you change your mindset question. to realize that you don't like it and then have to change it? You have to improve. Probably, yeah, starts at a very young age. I remember seeing a TED talk where the gal came and was saying her, her father was waiting for her every day after school and saying, okay, what did you fail at today? Damn, I wish I would have known that really, but I'm going to be one of those crazy grandpas that will do that. Why don't you tell us about the Curious Forge? Tell us how that idea started, what you do with it. There's so much there, but give us a rundown. It actually was born out of uh, Burning Man and just seeing these amazing kinetic art pieces that really took a multidiscipline a group of people collectively working on it. I was really interested. That's some live Sorry. coffee you have there. <laughs> a, I love it. It's just like this cattail snake that comes across <laughs> the screen. Like um, sort of like a Loch Ness monster. Yeah, I was really interested in a, a more of a collective uh, group project and how that would work out. A lot of times in my work and play, it's individual endeavors. Almost everything I had been doing was an individual endeavor. That was the start of it. And it grew from that. We started off, I emptied my garage out into what was an 800 square foot building and emailed all my friends, hey, let's, let's get together and build some amazing stuff. And then learning more and more about community, needs of the community. I love learning and I love teaching. And I think they go hand in hand and empowering somebody and getting that surprise or that self-confidence. I love teaching welding to non-welders because it's a black magic art with a lot of electricity, cold hard steel equipment. And just to see them emerge out of that, like, what can I do now? Then it just grew. It's a lot like the art I do is very organic. And so it's a, a communication back and forth, which is a bit of a cliche, but it's really true. And so this was about a direction, not a destination type of thing. So I didn't have anything in mind so much, but it's grown into a, a really vibrant, amazing space. We have 20,000 square feet, 40 volunteers or artists that support community members. We've done a Burning Man art and kids programming, things like that, intergenerational skill sharing. I think my favorite part about it, though, is it gives these artists a stage to actually share their personal aesthetics and a, a voice with their hard-earned experience. But the, the heart of the Curious Forge is reclaiming our aesthetics. So are the tools that were taken away with the Industrial Revolution and things that follow manufacturing developments and that. We could give the tools back to the artists to try out new things, new materials, new processes, and learn from each other and really have a deep personalization. So things like laser cutter or CNC plasma torch can be used pretty easily. It sounds technical, but it, they're super easy to use and easy to get your input in everything from scanners and things like that. 3D scanners and just applications like Adobe Capture allows you to capture and vectorize on the fly. 
right? You can take a, a picture of a friend, would turn it into a depth map very easily, and then put it on something that you made using a laser cutter to etch your own designs into your jewelry or doing applique on your clothing, just all kinds of new, very approachable technologies and people to support you to play in that material. A well-known artist in the community holds space for a weekly gathering of of like an open lab in the university setting for critiquing and prompting and guiding and creating a creative practice, basically. That's the biggest thing I, I find with people wanting to do this is it's always the meanest, closest dog that your car, your kids need this, your dog threw up on the on the carpet. There's all these things that will take you away from that creative time. I hope these labs will help people land in a spot where they know their peers will be and a guide that will help them create that practice. I'm wondering how the process, the creative process is for you when you're doing it individually versus when you're doing it in a collaboration. I think the creative process is too broad a term. It's like, I love hamburgers made with range beef and I just love my life and it's just so far apart and I think that creative process could use some refining in that there's this time where you're coming up with a concept and so that's a creative process that for me generally is on waking that I can stay in a little bit of a, a directed dream state and play around in that space and then when the concept is there and I'm starting to fill that out that's a different kind of creative process for me where I'm pulling in all the this stuff, as they say in the artist way, it's that creative well. So doing things like poetry taught me about the minutiae of life and paying attention to that because it's the type of poetry I love and the power of little things, little words. And then photography, I'm dabbling in that and seeing the contrast and rhythm and tones and compositions all around me all the time makes you aware of that. And then the depth of studying biology, sociology, psychology, how we're relating as a human being into the world. I love, I have to mention a book called On Looking, and it was a Brooklyn author who noticed her dog had a very different trip around her when she was walking the dog. The smells, the communication, hiking the leg up to communicate. And so she invited 10 or 11 specialists, graphic artists, sociologists, a blind woman to walk around the block with her and describe what, and a geologist. And it was just fascinating to see through their eyes what they were seeing. Putting on new eyes is really, but I, yeah, getting back to your question. So filling that, having that fuzzy time and then honing in using that well that you're continually filling and just playing versus with a group. I feel like the most important thing in that creative process is what the the heart of improv, comedy improv or contact improv is, which is yes and. But keep that flow going with the other contributors and collaborators. And the group is a bully bay of different personalities in that. And sometimes it needs to be led with that yes and contribution. And sometimes it's about just everyone throwing stuff on the wall and the community nodding of the head and going at it. I was in New York City last week just for a little vitamin A for art and just seeing the other art spaces, galleries, talking with makers and and artists and their processes. So it's always borrowing. You've seen that book, Steal Like an Artist. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. Where you're looking at what influences for an artist you love 
and going to their sources so that Mm -hmm. you can get your own path, but seeing that. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to try something creative, but is, has that fear, has those, has that semantic baggage? How would you get them to come out of that and, and to make something? I would first start with examining our own baggage that we come up with you know, all the time and all the reasons why we can't, that that would be my first thing. And knowing that we're creating our own meaning all the time. And so you could actually take that to a a semi-dark place of we're all creating our own meaning. Is there any meaning? So then bringing your own meaning into what it is you're doing and how that result that comes out. The next thing I would do is just get in and do it. Just play, explore, and use that framing of play and exploration. I'm going to misquote Chuck Close, but he said, inspiration is for amateurs. All the ideas come from actually doing something because the bandwidth of reality and of holding this cup, I can see the handprints on it, the ideas, the rim, the the foot. And so it's the bandwidth is just so much higher of reality and and working with materials. That would be just a great place to start. What I I really appreciate in a a talk with one of my sons was I grew up in a religious background, fundamental Baptist, And I always admired these religious figures who had this confidence to go up and speak in front of a thousand people. I'm agnostic, but how can I use that? They basically gave it to God. God put me in this position and he's going to do whatever he wants with me. So changing that around, like giving my gifts to the universe, to whatever community, to myself, and then letting that take care of itself. So you can be passionate about something, but not be attached to Mm -hmm. the outcome. That's a really powerful place to start start again from is knowing that you're just going to work forward. Hopefully you enjoy the journey. Do you ever have people tell you, I'm not creative, I'm not artistic? And what do you say to those people? Yeah, all the time, all the time. That is like whenever I'm I'm talking about the forge or something, oh, I'm just not creative. Mm -hmm. And it's really about, first of all, getting past that, that we're all creative. We're relation creating machines. Our brains are always just creating new relationships between ideas and materials and things like that. So there's a, a few exercises that really can prove that. And there's a certain tool that I just love. It was uh, first, I think Edward de Bono came up with. It's called Idea Fan. I love taking people through that idea fan. Basically, you get an idea like you got to get on the other side of the wall. And then using this idea fan, which is using abstract and concrete ideas, if you have an abstract idea like getting over, what all the ways can you get over? You fill that up. Bouncing, springing, building up the ladder, and then moving on to, okay, so we know about getting over. What about getting under, around, through? By looking at it like that, you just can generate all these ideas and you can do it with cup handles, with anything at all. So it just starts that creative juice going. And in general, they then leave that having look at this page of all these ideas and then going into the play again, the material play. It's a matter of getting over yourself and getting over that idea and knowing that everybody is creative in their own unique way and expressing that unique way is that journey that you got to start on. Have you seen that transformation with any of your members at the Forge where they came in and they were timid and afraid and, and now they're in a, in a different place creatively? Yeah. One comes to mind, this guy came in, he was a fabricator. I was going to do a laser cutter demonstration and and qualification. After he saw what was possible, he was over there for about three months. 
It was a new medium for him, mm-hmm. a new way of thinking about things, and he just dove really deep into it. So sometimes it's just that invitation into another world, another space that can trigger somebody's. It does happen all the time. People come in all the time with this one thing, and that's mm-hmm. what I love doing is connecting them with other people or other materials or processes that really opens up. Once that's open, once that you get that rush, I'm sure there's some kind of gland inside you that when you get that thrill of a breakthrough or a new idea or something like that, it's just squirting out this hormone that just uh, livens you up and, and opens up those gates, other ways of being creative. Can you share with us what is your favorite tool for fixing mistakes? Yeah, that's an interesting question too. Again, I would go back to this idea of the coffee cup stain, that semantics around mistake that I think we have to get a better or different relationships. But I, I will say, so I'm mostly in metal and we have a, a big wood shop as well. We always make fun of them. If they board too short, they potentially have to start all over. We just weld on another piece and keep going. Mm-hmm. But most technological advancement has been through mistakes. Changing that relationship, I think, is super important. But as far as the concrete, you know, in metal, it's interesting because there are expenses involved in things and those are a reality. And having multiple goes doing maquettes will help prevent those, quote, mistakes to hone in on your vision of things. And yeah, just playing with that mistake, really, and reimagining it. That's the organic process with that dance on the material or that project that you're doing. I, I had once, I wanted to make a barbecue, needed a barbecue, wanted a special one cut into this well pressure tank, ended up with a beautiful bowl and plasma torching on that. And wow, that kind of looks like a face. From there, it was beards and waves and spoon eyes, stainless steel eyes, just a blast. And people ask me, how much time did you spend on this thing? Because it's very intricate. I have no idea. I have no clue. The thing of like, when you read a book, you look up and it's three or four hours later. That's what it was. I have no clue how long it took to do that. So it, at least in that sense, I feel like it was your imagination that that fixed that mistake. Yeah, imagination and the community of Nevada County is a crunchier thing. We're always looking for these icons and symbols and things like that. So that kind of grew out of that, like how the fire pit, how can this be part of the community things that we do? I got invited to so many parties, people I didn't even know. Hey, can you bring your uh, fire pit with? Nice. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, the world is full of cliches and they're cliches for a lot of reasons. And there's a lot of reasons to break those cliches. One of them is that journey. Every piece I work on is that journey. And when we, how we meet ourselves, uh, I'm quoting a lot of, of, of different books, but Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was about quality and what is quality. And that's where we meet the world. And so we can make a much fuller life by how we meet the world. And art is a way that we meet the world in a very personal way. You know, our personal aesthetics. And it doesn't have to be great art. doesn't have to be monumental art. But I, I really feel like that creative time is so important for us to meet the world fully. That's wonderful. I love yeah. that. If our listeners want to find you or find The Curious Forge, where can they find you? Uh, the website is The Curious Forge. 
membership-based.org. And it's a membership-based, but we bring in a lot of the public because we spark off them a lot. Now that we're opened up, we're really excited. We're going to have a hot glass, cold beer night where you can watch professional glass blowers and drink out of your own cup, things like that. Look at the calendar. And if you have ideas on how we can connect even more with the community, love to hear them. Great. Thank you, Liam. This has been so wonderful to have you and I really appreciate your thoughts and your advice. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Here are the creativity boosts from today's episode. Number one, if you're stuck, come up with a challenge to push yourself. Like, what can you make from a two by four? Number two, evaluate the excuses you're making to neglect your creative practice, especially the small ones that you know you can work around. It doesn't really take that long to clean up dog vomit. Number three, challenge yourself to see the world from a new and different perspective, whether that is meeting someone new, trying something new, or reading a book. Put on new eyes. Number four, if you're worried about making mistakes, make a small version of your vision so that you can hone in on the final product. And number five, let your imagination fix the mistake. You can support this podcast by making a contribution at buymeacoffee.com backslash how we create. Remember, you can submit your first memory of doing something creative to be aired on the podcast by DMing me on Instagram at the how we create podcast. Again, that's the how we create podcast.